Hello and welcome to the Crop It Like It's Hot podcast brought to you by The Crop Tech Show, an arable farming magazine and hosted by me, Alice Dyer. As always, you can get one CPD point for tuning into this podcast. All you have to do is email the name of the podcast plus your basis account number to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. Agroforestry is by no means a new concept, but given the climate and biodiversity challenges we're all facing right now, it's certainly becoming more widely discussed and considered with growing interest from both land managers and government. However, for farmers, planting trees in crop fields is a big investment, a bit of a risk and a big change to production systems. So today we're going to hear the valuable but broad experiences of three agroforesters who are on various stages of their journeys. Now we have touched on agroforestry on the podcast a bit before in our episode in producing more homegrown fruit and veg. So if you want to hear more about Stephen Briggs setup, who is mentioned a few times in this podcast and he's really very interesting, particularly in an arable scenario, then just have a scroll back through our previous episodes and you should find it. Obviously today we'll be looking more at silver arable systems, but I'm sure there will be some mention of livestock agroforestry as well. But now for my first guest, Helen Cheshire is Senior Farming Advisor at the Woodland Trust and she's responsible for working with both the farming sector and policymakers to promote the benefits of trees on farms. So Helen, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you. So I've been reading a DEFRA report and I think it's from about 2017 um, and it says something like the UK is quite behind the rest of Europe in terms of agroforestry area. Um, Do we know what kind of area is under agroforestry in the UK now? Well we have very limited data on it um, to be honest. There was some research that was undertaken from a European wide perspective back in um, 2016 which estimated that within the UK there was about just over three percent of the utilizable agricultural area was under agroforestry. Now that um, consisted of silver arable, silver pastoral and high value um, fruit trees so it excluded boundary hedgerows, wood pasture and parkland which are obviously very common features within the agricultural um, setup in in the UK. Um, So We know that it's very small in terms of those areas. Um, I think the overall average in the European countries was 9% of their utilisable agricultural area. But some countries like Portugal and Spain have sort of over 20%. I think Portugal's even 30% um, of their silver pastoral type schemes where they've got um, livestock grazing under predominantly oak trees. So it does vary. And yeah, you're quite right. The UK is right at the bottom of uh, of the table. Yeah. And we know that the government would like to see more of our agricultural landscape under agroforestry, but do you have any idea what kind of area they're aiming for? There are no official targets, although it's good to identify that in the um, latest Climate Change Committee report in, in, in its recommendations as to how the UK is going to meet net zero by 2050, they recommended that a minimum of 10% of that utilisable agricultural area should be put under either silver arable or silver pastoral schemes. Now, that's very top line figures. Um, we would suggest that 10% should be a minimum. Um, and that 
actually, you know, you can do a lot more if you increase that up. Um, so I think those figures were based on 85 trees per hectare for the silver arable and for up to 400 trees per hectare in silver pastoral schemes. So, yes, there's lots of scope. And I think I think actually those figures that if we met that 10 percent, it roughly equates to converting 30 to 40,000 hectares of agricultural land into agroforestry. So that's with the food production continuing per decade. And obviously COP26 was last month, there was an awful lot of talk about planting more trees. So why is agroforestry in particular a good way to integrate more trees into our landscape? Well, it is just because it's integrating trees into the farm landscape, it's enabling those to increase that tree cover in a way that supports sustainable and resilient food production. So it's a bit of a win-win. It's not taking that land out of food production. It's in fact, if it's planted and designed in the right way, those trees have the ability to both produce food in terms of fruit, nuts and trees, or provide a range of environmental services that will enable the farm's current food production to be more, as I say, to be more resilient to, to climate change and more sustainable going forward. Yeah. And on that, from from the Woodland Trust perspective, what kind of trees does the UK need more of? Do, should we be planting trees for biodiversity or, you know, fast growing trees for carbon sequestration or fruit trees? Well, it, 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 uh, we always need diversity, so um, it's not a question of only one type. Um, it's, we feel very strongly at the Woodland Trust, as I think a lot of the farmers do, that we can't tackle the climate change in, in isolation. It must be tackled alongside the crisis we have in nature, and you know we need that to enable that we can continue to have healthy soils and healthy habitats to produce food going forward. So it's very much about tackling the climate change and biodiversity crisis hand in hand. Um, we would at the Woodland Trust strongly advocate that native trees should be your first port of choice um, when you're considering that nature, um, trying to tackle that nature crisis. Um, because they are the ones that are, you know, appropriate to this to this uh, climate. They already are completely interlinked with providing habitat for a whole range of of wildlife. But it's with all of these things, it's very much going back to what, from a farmer's point of view, understanding what their personal objectives are for planting trees on their particular holding. So you know that, and that often will be multiple objectives. But it's absolutely critical that they initially think what are my objectives for considering the integration of trees or agroforestry into my farming business so if it's predominantly for the environmental services that 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 those trees can deliver then we would strongly recommend that in most cases they should be native so and, and you know particularly looking around at what trees grow in your local area so if you're thinking, if you've got problems, for example, an arable farmer with, with soil erosion and you, you know, they think it's as part of a solution to tackling that um, strategically placed shelter belts can help reduce that wind or rain caused soil erosion, then, you know, we would recommend that a, a, mi- a diverse mix of native species would be, would be the first choice. You know, that's, that, that shelter belt, as well as helping to reduce soil erosion, can obviously provide really important habitat for pollinators and beneficial insects. And there's some good evidence to show how effective that can be, whether those trees are in shelter belts or in alley cropping. Um, we also know that, you know, again, 
strategically placed either shelter belts or alley cropping or hedgerows will help improve crop water efficiency so they'll slow the wind down and keep keep more water in available to the plants so reduce evapotranspiration rates so it's really you know it's looking at the farms as a whole and working out where trees can help perhaps address some of the um the environmental issues that the farm is experiencing perhaps as a result of the you know increased frequency of extreme weather events but obviously also many farmers will think about trees as providing additional products so whether that's timber or wood fuel or fruit or nuts so again that you know then is very important to think what are what are your primary objectives do you know what your market will be for those products and in those situations obviously then then non-native trees will also be um, relevant um, and important but we would just um, stress the importance of biosecurity. Every farmer is very aware of the increasing number of tree diseases that are in the UK. And things like ash dieback, farmers are only too aware of the significant impact that disease in itself is going to have on the landscape. So whether you're you know, planting native or non-native trees, it's absolutely essential that those trees, the seeds have been collected in the UK and grown on in nurseries in the UK. So you know, we feel very strongly that it's great that farmers are increasingly interested in planting trees, but we've got to get on top of the, um, the tree health emergency, really. So it's it's all about biosecurity. So you really do need to know and ask the questions where you're where you're buying your trees from, um, and make sure that collectively we we reduce the impact of introducing further tree disease. But of course, the other the other increasingly important area for farmers to think about is that these trees can also help deliver those public goods. So you know, it is that carbon sequestration, and potentially there may be maybe markets for those trees in terms of carbon, or at least at very least helping the farm itself um, achieve net zero. So obviously, trees can be an important part of a farm's ability to uh, get to net zero itself. And in terms of agroforestry and uptake from farmers, what do you think the barriers to adoption currently are? I think a lot of it is just completely a lack of knowledge of what agroforestry is. You know, I went to a cultural college many, many moons ago, and I think we had probably half a lecture mentioning agroforestry, which was something that went on either in the tropics or possibly in some parts of Europe, um, but wasn't really something that <laughs> we did over here. I think one of the, the, big, the big problems within that lack of knowledge is that people tend to have quite a narrow definition of what agroforestry is and certainly um, here at the Woodland Trust and with the farmers that we work with we have a very broad definition of what agroforestry is so it is simply the integration of trees and shrubs into farming systems so you know you have the alley cropping systems that you see in some arable fields but it's also includes your boundary hedgerows shelter belts um, so it's it's a much broader definition and every farm is even if it doesn't think it is has agroforestry on its farm in the sense that every farm will have some hedgerows and and woody assets so it's more about understanding how if you improve the management of some of those existing woody assets and where you may increase that that they'll actually really start to work for your business rather than just being you know something that is nice to look at and has some wildlife benefits so i think the lack of knowledge is a real major barrier Um, and then once farmers are inspired to think about it or become more aware of it then 
you know, the big two barriers are a lack of any formal um, government funding for agroforestry currently and a lack of trained advisors um, in the subject matter. So, you know, there's, there's sort of a hierarchy of, of barriers that we need to collectively overcome. Because as you say, the interest in agroforestry is growing significantly. I mean, I started working proactively in this field probably about 10 years ago and, you know, from a very, very low base. Um, now, it's sort of talked about in the farming press. It's very common for us um, to run sessions at agricultural events, which are really well attended. And, um, yeah, we know from our work with farms ourselves that the growth and interest is, is there. Yeah. And you said that there's not any government funding um, currently available that purely focused on agroforestry. Do you think there is likely to be any time soon? And how else do you think the government can help farmers unlock these opportunities in agroforestry? Um, yeah, so there's no, well, DEFRA didn't take up the agroforestry options that were available in the last cap round. And obviously, as we've now left and we're developing our own environmental land management scheme, um, that means that we are in a position to try and influence DEFRA to, um, certainly in England, to make sure that there is support for agroforestry. We are making inroads. It's, you know, DEFRA will fully accept that agroforestry has a really important role to play and they're very supportive of it being you know much more of a mainstream land use going forward um the woodland trust is part one of the partners in an elm test on agroforestry so that's led by the organic research center and then there's ourselves and the soil association and abacus agriculture which is Stephen briggs's consultancy are running that that test for DEFRA. So we're just in the middle of a series of workshops where we're meeting with farmers and farm advisors, foresters. Each each workshop is hosted on a farm that is practicing a different type of agroforestry. So um, to really dig deep into what farmers think they would need from a scheme to actually be able to take up agroforestry. And we're looking in particular at the payment incentives they would need and the advice and guidance. So we it's moving in the right direction. We've still got probably a lot of hurdles to overcome, but we are hopeful that the new Environmental Land Management Scheme, ELM, will support agroforestry. Um, obviously, because agroforestry is so diverse you know i think that i personally think that there are elements that should be and could be supported through the sustainable farming incentive component one and then i think there are some elements of it which perhaps are more appropriate to be to be supported through local nature recovery we're not there yet we've still got you know a lot of um work to do with DEFRA to help overcome some of the barriers and, and, and certainly how to how do we design a scheme that's actually going to work for farmers on the ground so yeah we're, we're delighted to be involved in this test because obviously it gives us an opportunity to sort of just enable the farmers and advisors on the ground to, to give their thoughts as to what they would need yeah so there's something on the horizon so hopefully yes um you know I, it that's obviously in England. Um, I've got colleagues in Wales who are actively working with the Welsh government who seem to be, again, very interested and supportive of the concept of agroforestry going forward. So, um, and likewise in Scotland. So, yeah, I think the climate and nature crisis have made the governments think, well, actually, you know, we, if we can integrate trees effectively into the farmed landscape, which helps support food production then in a way they're sort of additional trees to those that where they need actual land use change so you know that, you know 
the small amount of trees per hectare if over a large hectare can start to have a, a really significant effect. Yeah. But, you know, with the devil will be in the detail. <laughs> so there's a lot of work still to be done. And we work very closely with the farmers that the Woodland Trust have helped create agroforestry schemes to help influence policy to say, look, this is this is this is how it works. This is the barriers that these farmers have had to come over. This is what they've needed to help make it happen. Yeah. So let, I think that's really important. Yeah, because it's a big investment, really, for a farmer, isn't it? Especially... Yeah, and I think it's not just the funding. I think there's a big gap in um, appropriately trained advisors. Um, so, you know, we, there's a piece of work that needs to encourage both agricultural advisors and forestry advisors to to sort of understand what agroforestry is and bring their respective expertise um, into that mix. Um, so I think there is a, you know, there's a need for many more agroforestry advisors. There's probably also a real need for, you know, sort of demonstration of what agroforestry is. You know, I think we all know that you know, farmers quite rightly, you know, will learn a lot from their peers. Um, yeah. And so those farmers who are already well established, you know, people like Stephen Briggs, or, who are often showing other farmers around their agroforestry schemes, you know, in some ways should probably be supported to do that. You know, they are the innovators um, and they are willing to share their lessons learned with other farmers. So you know, maybe DEFRA can help with, with structuring some sort of mentoring scheme. Yeah. as well so I think it's not just a question of funding I think the advice piece is absolutely essential as well um, because we need the right tree in the right place for the right reason and uh, you know a badly designed agroforestry scheme will not only be a negative thing for the farmer involved but will also damage you know the the, the interest in it from, from other farmers we need to make sure that lessons learned are shared and, and good schemes are designed Definitely. And our next three guests are hopefully going to share just some of their wisdom and do's and don'ts of silver arable systems. Thank you, Helen. And now for my next guest with a wealth of experience in agroforestry and who's worked alongside many of the pioneering growers here in the UK is Colin Tosh, Senior Agroforestry Researcher at the Organic Research Centre. Colin, I guess my first question is, if you wanted to sell the benefits of agroforestry to an arable farmer or, you know, maybe get them to consider it as a viable option, how exactly would you sell it to them? Oh, well, I I mean, I guess the the largest long-term benefit is really the ability to get more material, more yield from, from the same space, essentially, compared to growing each in monoculture. Uh, most of the most of the agroforestry systems in temperate regions anyway, they have this thing called a land equivalent ratio, usually between about one point, between one to 1.4, which means you'd have to use about uh, over one to one and a half times the space if you were to grow, say, your, your apple orchard and your cereals and monoculture, you know, uh, grow them separately. Uh, you would have to use 1.4 times more space so you know it's really efficient land use you know you can get more yield out of your out of your single field essentially uh so that, that that's the long-term benefit uh i mean there are there are a few uh issues you have to take into account like for the first couple of years when you plant your trees you might not be getting as much yield out of them few well it could could even be longer if you're growing large timber trees you know 
But, uh, you know, so people growing apple trees, for example, it's not such an issue. After a year or two, you're, you're kind of you're, you're away with your apple harvest. So it depends on the kind of tree you use, uh, on how long you, it's going to take for you to get that return. But, uh, you know, while that, uh, while that small amount of land within the field, say you're doing strip alley agroforestry, while it's out of commission, I mean... It's only 10% of the field, you know, you can still use it. It's not like the whole field's completely out of, con- out of commission. You can still use it to, for arable, you know, and these small trees that are growing won't really interfere with your arable crop that much at all. That's really interesting because I suppose when people think of planting trees on productive land, they yeah. might think that actually that reduces the productivity of the field, um, but you're saying it actually makes it more productive. Ah, uh, yeah, I mean, just, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of because you use the third dimension, you know, uh, so, and in, in France, for example, they, they don't even have, it's, I'm, I'm principally talking about strip alley agroforestry, where you plant strips of trees within your cereal or your rape field, yeah? In France, they don't even put grass margins underneath the fields, they just, they just plant them straight into the, uh, into the into the wheat so there's absolutely no spaces wasted there you've essentially got a wheat crop and you've got an orchard on top of it yeah you've got two crops in the space of one essentially yeah? so it's a really efficient use of space yeah? but uh and, and and then i mean even when the trees are young and systems like that uh you know they're not actually taking up any space you can plant your wheat right around them you know i mean it doesn't make any difference so uh yeah, I mean, ultimately, the, the, there may be a year or two where you have like 10, 20% of your field, however much space you decide to, to, to use for these trees, will be unproductive. But within a few years, when you, when you can start to harvest the, the tree crop, if you're going to be doing that, then uh, you'll be getting more crop from that patch of land than you would growing each in monoculture separately. Yeah? And I guess it's hard it's hard to explain or maybe imagine on a podcast um, without seeing the setup, but and you kind of touched on it a bit already. Um, but could you just explain some of the different silver arable setups um, that you've worked on and how they kind of look in practice? Well, I mean, I suppose strictly speaking, strictly speaking, just traditional mixed hedge and trees around the edge of the field i suppose essentially as a as a, an agroforestry system but i mean the one that most people are considering is the is the, the thing the system like they have at wakelands and suffolk where you have a cereal field and you put a, a number of strips uh usually fruit or nut trees uh timber trees if you like uh usually spaced about 25 meters apart and these things will be two to three meters wide uh, you put these along your field that usually usually sort of perpendicular to the wind if possible because uh, that'll uh, it'll reduce to, it'll reduce wind uh, wind speed within your crop that, that you grow in between the trees your your wheat crop and that, that often cuts down on transpiration rates and often saves you water uh, can also cut cut back on uh, soil erosion as well uh, because there is a little bit of shade in, so you can get you can get a little bit of dent uh, to your wheat yield right beside the trees. But looking at it another way, if, if, especially in really hot countries, that can be a benefit. You know, uh, sometimes uh, 
some agroforestry systems have, in, in uh, African countries have saved crops from from death, you know. There's been experiments where, they, where they've grown uh, maize crops in monoculture, they've grown them in agroforestry, and because that, there is that little bit of shade, and, it's, and if there's an extreme temperature event, it actually saves them, you know what I mean, because there's a bit of shading, you know. Uh, so, yeah, these are... It's sort of one of the major benefits of these strip agroforestry systems is the is this sort of dampening effect on environmental extremes. So you tend not to get too much, quite so much extreme drought because the wind uh, reduces transpiration rate, loss of water from the crop, uh, and uh, the sort of temperature extremes don't tend to be quite as severe as well because you get this little bit of shade in you. Uh, I saw a modelling study recently, it's only a modelling study, it's not real life, but they suggested that you could get up to about 30% of dampening of, of environmental extremes. Uh, and of course it goes the other way, if, you, if, if it's very, uh, if you have very wet land, then the trees will suck up water as well. So, you know, it, it sort of dampens environmental extremes at both ends, extreme temperature and extreme high temperature and extreme low temperature, you know? Yeah, and that's really relevant at the moment, given the last few seasons that we've had. Yeah, 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 definitely, yeah. There's a guy, uh, there's a farmer near to me, uh, he, has a pers- he persistently has this area that's, I don't know, maybe about an acre's worth that, that, in a field that's that's out to, almost always out of commission because of flooding, you know. Uh, so I've, uh, I mean, I obviously have to approach that guy and tell him he just needs to plant a little bit of woodland there. He can get, get, get most of it back because trees will just suck up these big pools of water, you know. It's pretty much problem solved. You, you'll lose a little bit of land through planting the trees, but uh, you get a lot back through their ability to suck up water. You know? Looking just at the crop itself, the, do the presence of trees have much influence in terms of things like, um, you know, yield, quality, maybe disease? Um, I mean, I know, obviously, you work primarily on the organic side of things, but um, maybe fungicide inputs on in conventional systems... Well, I, I think a lot of I think a lot of arable farmers going into agroforestry are choosing quite small trees to minimise shade. Uh, shade. So you've got uh, Stephen Briggs, who's well known for his agroforestry. He's he's basically grown an apple orchard. The trees never get that big, and essentially they don't make any. They they don't shade the crop at all. But I mean, if if, if you're planning to grow larger trees, there is the potential for the trees to, to shade the crop to some extent and, and just because of reduced uh, like incidence on the crop you can sometimes get you can sometimes take a little bit of hit next to next to each alleyway but I, again like I say if you use uh, if you use small trees it's not such an issue uh, I'm not sure if competition between trees and the crop is, is quite so, so big an issue as, as people make out uh, Stephen Briggs for example to, to minimise uh, competition between the like water and nutrient Competition between the trees and the crop. He sort of uh, he severs the roots uh, uh, sort of vertically uh, along each alleyway, so the roots don't actually spread out into the area that the crop's growing in. You know, into the actual field. There's there's tricks you can do to, to minimise competition uh, between them. And uh, we, we we don't know if this is actually true, but Stephen uh, Briggs uh, and a number of other farmers have told me that. If, if you have the agri- if you have the alley strip system for for many years, 
the the performance of these areas next to the trees seems to get better and better every year. I think it's probably something that's going to be researched quite soon. It could be some some sort of microbial build-up or something, you know, related to the trees. Uh, mycorrhizal, maybe the trees are supplying mycorrhiza to the soil or something like that. But actually, to go back and answer your question about pests and stuff, uh, a, thought, a thoughtlessly planted agroforestry system has the potential to, to reduce weeds and pests, I would say, but there are things you can do. Uh, for example, uh, planting a planting a flowering flowering strip under your trees, which I think you can get paid on countryside stewardship. I think Stephen Briggs does that. So he plants flowering plants underneath his trees, and and research uh, by Tom Statton, a young guy recently doing his PhD, has showed that that kind of tips the balance of of insects in favour of the better ones. Eh? So you get more pollinators. And you get more beneficial insects that eat they eat pests, eh? uh, and also by by managing the understory of the trees with, with flowers, you, you can also sort of crowd out perennial weeds and stuff like that that might spread into your crops. So I think it's fair to say that you you, you can't just plant your trees and that's it, and then leave the understory. I think the understory of the trees probably needs some some kind of active management to to tip things and and, and favour of being beneficial. Eh? And final question, what would your, you know, your best piece of advice be for someone considering the potential for agroforestry on their farm? So most of the people I'm aware of have done it really responsibly, you know, so I don't think I've come across a single, single case where it's had a negative impact. I suppose if you were just to plant your rows of trees and then never think about them again, uh, it might not be great, uh, especially if you're... If you're uh, if you're growing organic, you know, you might get weeds, but, uh, you know, if you actively manage the trees, keep them pruned, keep the uh, keep the understory diverse and, and with flowering plants and stuff like that, uh, you should be okay. But, I mean, I think the, I, I think the best advice really is, is to take advice from people that have already done it. So uh, there's, a, there's a number of... If you just if you look in the agroecology website, there's profiles a number of a number of well-known successful agroforestry farmers. Just drop them an email. Drop these farmers an email and ask when their next open day will be. Or could could you have ten minutes on the phone with them and, and just ask them questions? I think that's that's the best way to develop expertise is just to talk to these people that are, have already done it. And I, I wouldn't expect you to to have too many issues, you know. Yeah, I think from recording this podcast, one thing I've learned about agroforestry is there's a lot of very helpful people out there that are willing to share yeah. all their knowledge. Yeah, I mean, and in, in, in terms of in terms of payments, uh, I think it's only going to be. I mean, obviously, planting trees is like a key public good, isn't it? Yeah. So it can only be positive in terms of future payments. Planting planting trees at the moment, it's not going to have any negative impacts i don't think in terms of subsidy payments or anything like that although, although elm the structure of elm isn't fully worked out yet but yeah. obviously planting trees is going to be looked on positively yeah we're feeling optimistic in that area now a hugely important aspect of agroforestry and knowing where to start is deciding exactly what you want from the trees Perhaps you just want the symbiotic benefits to your arable crop or you're looking to enter completely new markets. 
Now to talk us through researching those markets and picking a species to suit you, I'm very pleased to have here with me Harriet Bell, who's just finished working on the Dartmoor Elms Test and Trials. She's about to start work at Riverford looking at regenerative farming, but her main agroforestry experience comes from her work on the Dartington Estate in Devon, where she managed their agroforestry projects. So Harriet, welcome to the podcast. Um, Shall we just start with a bit of background on you and kind of your experience and journey with agroforestry so far? Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, I I think I was very much a kind of learn by doing introduction to agroforestry. Um, So I suppose my first experience of agroforestry wasn't really called agroforestry. Um, I was working on a farm just outside of Exeter and we replanted a number of old orchards under the HLS scheme um, with sort of uh, local Devon sort of cider apple varieties. And then we grazed those orchards and, and technically that is agroforestry. Uh, we weren't referring to it as agroforestry, we were referring to it as orchards. Um, but that was my kind of first experience. And I wasn't part of the establishment of that project because I only started after they'd kind of been going with that HLS agreement for a little while. Uh, my introduction was trying to uh, make it easier to graze in those fields um, and then also trying to find a good market for the crops from those trees. Um, and then it was really at Dartington, which, I was, which is where I went next, where I kind of really got to grips with agroforestry and, and mostly through the privilege of actually learning through the tenants and projects that are already there. Um, so places like the Agroforestry Research Trust, which has been up and running for a couple of decades at, at Dartington, and then also other really good kind of growers in the area like um, Marina O'Connell at Huxley's Cross Farm. So when you started your job at Dartington, how did you make the decision about, you know, what tree species to go for, what crop to go for? Right. So, yes. Uh, so we had an unusual brief at Dartington, which was basically to convert our best arable field on the estate, it's about sort of 50 acres, um, into an agroforestry field. And our, our brief was to do it. Um, but we didn't have any sort of specifications on, on what to grow or, or how to grow it. Um, so I basically started with a kind of blanket research of, of reading every book, every article, or talking to every person that I thought I could find that, that sort of knew about agroforestry and sort of bringing them together into sort of local discussion groups to see what it is we could grow. Um, and in some ways, it was a really helpful process. Uh, and in other ways, it was a deeply unhelpful process because it really didn't narrow down the selection at all. <laughs> like, I think the only crop that we managed to rule out um, as a consequence of all of that discussion was hops. Um, that was the only one we were like, yeah, no, this, isn't, this isn't the right location for hops. Um, but it, it seems like we can grow anything from kind of top fruit to cricket bat willow to potentially kind of sort of relatively short rotation forestry um, to kind of innovative edibles. Um, it, it didn't seem to rule anything out. It just put, kept putting more things on the, on the table for us to choose from. Um, so really, um, we ended up being very much shaped by what crops we could find a market for. Um, and that was about applying the learning from my kind of initial introduction to agroforestry, which is with orchards, to this project. Um, because what I really didn't want to do was to lumber our tenant farmer, because I, I worked for the estate and it was our tenant, it was a field that belonged to our tenant farmer where we were going to establish this agroforestry. I really didn't want him to lumber him with a, a crop which had the potential to be kind of labour or um, um, intensive and, and expensive to manage and not produce a harvest that was of value to the farm business. Yeah. Um, so instead of kind of picking the tree and then finding the market, we kind of reversed the process 
So what what crop did you actually go for in the end? So in the end, we spoke to a couple of local businesses that we knew were already selling tree crops. Um, so we spoke to Lossom Drinks because we knew that they already had a kind of range of products that were based, some of which were based on, on sale of tree crops, so apple juice, pear juice, elderflower, um, that kind of thing, um, about what crops, if any, they were most in need of. Actually, that's a bit of a dishonest memory. The, actually, what I did was I tried to go and persuade them that they wanted a supply of sea buckthorn. Um, and they turned around and said, no, we're all right, just sea buckthorn, thanks. Um, but could you grow some elderflower trees for us? I was like, yeah, that's probably a bit more straightforward. Um, um, and then the other uh, company we spoke to on the farm was um, Huxley's Cross Farm. And again, they had a, a local kind of veg and a fruit bag that they were selling around to the local community. And they also sell at the local farmer's market. Um, and we were talking to them about kind of doing it, encouraging them towards potentially a lower density of, of tree planting on their farm where they were already planting fruit tree crops um, because we were a little bit concerned about the impact that could have on some orchids. Uh, as it turned out, the orchids are doing really well in agroforestry, uh, but we didn't know that, that at the time. Uh, and so, you know, gave them the opportunity to kind of work with us to expand their growing site into our um, land. Um, and then the final crop actually... Um, came as a result of reading food magazines. Um, I was reading the Observer Food Monthly and it said, yeah, one of the next big crops is going to be a Szechuan pepper. Wow. So I called up. Yeah. <laughs> and I, well, I knew, so I knew Szechuan pepper grew on the estate already because I'd seen like Szechuan pepper trees at the Agroforestry uh, Research Trust Garden, which if you ever want an interesting day out, it's worth a visit. So I was like, okay, it's growing already. It's going to be a future crop. Let's um, give them a call. So I just, I just called the company that the article was about and said, Oh, you know, commercial growing of Szechuan pepper in the UK. Crazy idea. And they were like, no, that's a brilliant idea. We should definitely give that a shot. Um, and so that's how we ended up with Szechuan pepper. And those were our, our three crops. So it was a combination of going out and finding people who were already selling products based on tree crops um, and saying, you know, what do you need more of? Um, and then looking at, I suppose, food trends that, that were kind of seems to be i don't know if it actually that food trend ever came to be realized but um you know reading up on kind of what was going on in the kind of food scene and trying to meet that potential future demand yeah and how quickly did you get crops off these trees because i guess one concern that people might have is you know they they identify a market they go for it then they have to wait say I don't know, five years to actually get a crop off it and who knows what the market's doing by then. Yeah, um, so we, I suppose, in many ways, we kind of picked well um, in the, um, all of the trees crop within the first year. Um, none of those crops were probably commercially worth harvesting. Um, so, they, but they will crop from year one. Um, it's just that our, we worked out from the experience of, of the growers at Huxham's Cross Farm that it's probably not until year eight that we would get a, a really commercially worth harvesting crop off, off the trees. Um, although, the, you know, from year one to year eight, you do see an increase in yield. Um, the advantage that we had was that both Luscombe and Huxham's Cross Farm who work with, you know, they're experienced at, at working with tree tree crop producers tree crop growers mm. and of also doing some planting themselves so they they knew what the deal was um and they they were kind of matching their potential future need with i guess their sales forecasts um and, and knowing that you know we couldn't produce the, the full load of, of um you know elderflowers or whatever straight away it would take a little bit of time to get there and then with Szechuan pepper we planted a, a much lower number um and we planted it based on the annual sales of the, of, of the company we were working with at that time 
again, uh, knowing um, that they wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't grow that much from, from year one. But also with Eshel Pepper, we both knew it was, a, it was a risk. It was essentially, it was an R&D experiment for the company to see if they could actually kind of move their supply from China, where Eshel Pepper currently is growing, to the UK. Um, and, and also because they felt that they could probably sell far more of that crop um, than they currently were. Um, and therefore, even if it took a kind of a little time for us to, to build up to full production, um, they felt confident that there would be a market for it. No, that's so different, Szechuan peppers. And did you ever consider making kind of value-added products yourself? So, you know, like juices and things like that? Yeah, we did. So, I mean, whilst this field that we were transferring into an agroforestry field was the biggest arable field on the estate, our farm tenant was actually at that time running a dairy of, of um, both cows and milking goats okay. um, <laughs> yeah, and making their own ice cream. Um, so one of the things when we were kind of doing our initial research about what could we grow, we did actually think not about growing trees, but about growing berry bushes. Um, so we looked at things like nutri berries that you know the health food crazes, but we also looked at berries that might go well in ice cream flavors. Um, and then the crops that we ended up with, um, it was a kind of because we so and I think it's probably worth mentioning at this time that we ended up with quite an innovative approach because we as the landowner as the estate kind of started this project going. And then originally it was going to be, you know, the tenant would take it on and run with it. And actually what we ended up with is that all three of the companies that we'd kind of spoken to about producing a crop for, two of them ended up subletting rows from our farm tenant to grow their own trees on. So we owned the land as the estate. Our farm tenant had the, had the rent of this field, but they would then sublet rows from him to grow their own trees. So they planted and um, you know pruned harvested the trees themselves um and, and the reason i'm kind of using that as a lead-in to answer this question um is that there was a really nice potential interplay between all of those different businesses so by having all of those different businesses working together in one space you opened up lots of potential for kind of added value products because yeah. our, our tenant was producing ice cream one of his best-selling ice cream was a uh, gin elderflower and honeycomb so, you know, he could, he could potentially work with the guys growing the elderflower um, and take some elderflower from them. Um, one of our, um, you know, other growers in the field um, was growing apples and doing the, the farmer's market and, um, you know, selling a fruit and veg bag. But, you know, lost some drinks often found that they needed more UK-grown apples. So there was an opportunity for them to kind of sell across to the other tree grower if they wanted to. Um, and then... I did. I did find a recipe for special pepper flavor ice cream, but I've yet to persuade anybody that that could be a thing. Mm, yeah, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea was that between like all of these companies, there were there were multiple kind of points of connection where they could kind of cross over in terms of crops yeah. and kind of help sell each other and expand each other's markets and things like that. Yeah, and and that approach it spreads the risk a bit as well, doesn't it? So so massively it spread the risk. So um, I mean we established this whole field in agroforestry at no cost to our farm tenant. In fact, he, he made money off it because he got paid a, a, a rent um, from those subletting the tree rows um, to compensate for the for the small area that he lost for crops um, by renting out the tree rows. However, there is increasingly evidence that 
actually having the trees in those fields would probably help his crops and help his crop growth. Um, and it certainly did things like uh, one corner of the field used to get really, really wet, like a little pond um, at certain times of year. And as soon as we planted the trees, you never saw that happen again. Um, so you could, you know, there's there's good evidence that actually he, his crops probably benefited from having the trees in those fields. Um, and then by subletting the rows and, and letting the people that had both the experience in the market kind of really manage their own crops. And um, obviously you bring, we brought in a huge amount of skills to the field that weren't there in terms of, of tree crop growing and that helped reduce the risk um, as well. Um, and then, the, the, you know, the riskiest element was obviously the Szechuan pepper. I don't know if you've grown it in the UK before as a, as a commercial crop. So for that one, we just we just planted it in much lower numbers. So I think we aimed to put in about 200 trees, whereas with elderflower, we were planting like 1,600. For some arable farmers, it might be a bit daunting, the thought of growing a crop like a Szechuan pepper or, or any kind of tree. So what skills do you think are required for a farmer to... To venture into agroforestry? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think, I mean, some of the principles kind of cross over pretty straightforwardly. Uh, I, I don't have a huge background in arable, so I'm going to make some assumptions here and you have to tell me <laughs> if I'm getting it wrong. Um, but I mean, I, you know, as an arable farmer, you're probably pretty good at kind of assessing plant health, um, yeah. assessing where you might have disease issues or nutrient deficiencies from your long term knowledge of that plant, of that crop. Um, and so I would make the assumption um, that you could probably get your eye in over time um, and apply those skills to tree crops and, um, and you know and to trees. If you if you can pick out you know a patch of wheat or something and think oh, that doesn't that doesn't look quite right, um, I imagine you can probably do that to trees over time when you've had the kind of opportunity to do so. Um, obviously, planting a, a perennial crop that is a is a re- it's really um, you know, it's a really long-term commitment to trees, and and some crops more than others. Like you know, apple tree, it might be a fifteen-year commitment, but if you're if you're going in for I don't know chestnuts or something, it might be a fifty-year commitment. So, um, you're looking at a really long-term crop. I, I think um, one of the things I would say is probably go slow. You know, if you mess up an, an annual arable crop in one year, it's not a problem because you're going to plow it all in and do it again the following yeah. year. Um, but if you make a mistake in your layout or your planting of, of trees, it's a bit more of an issue. Um, I mean, it, it should be relatively straightforward because I think if you're going for a fairly straightforward silver arable system, it's just straight lines of trees. Um, but, you know, people do still kind of make mistakes about not factoring in enough space for turning circles or things like that. Um, so if you go, you know, if you start with one field or half a field and just kind of go a little bit at a time and ease your way into it, and, you know, you know, maybe don't do all your planting until the kind of third year, but just sort of start with a bit here and a bit there. So you kind of, um, you, you kind of figure out the system that works best for you. I would definitely suggest that sort of approach. Yeah. I think you're, I think the issue is probably the issue that we had at the start of our project, which is just the range of choice. Um, and I, I've talked about the kind of the what crop choice, um, but I think if you're looking at the design layout of your field, there's also um, things like to consider like genetic diversity of, of the crop, even when you've selected it, that might help you with disease resistance. Um, but there's also a lot about design um, and a design of um, um, the crop itself. And I don't know if I have to express this properly, but you know, um, I've just bought some cherry trees and I had a choice of the range of rootstocks I could buy them on that would influence their size. 
and I also have a choice about how I go on to plant those trees. So you could, I could go for something really low um, and prune them, which would be a bit more effort, but I could prune them into a step over row. So that would give me a kind of nice straight row, but it's only 18 inches high. So it's not going to shade out very much if I do it that way. You know, I could go for a slightly espalier system that may or may not work in fields, or I could let the sort of tree grow out to a kind of full goblet shape. And, and decisions like this, I think you want to do a bit of reading. Probably the, and the best thing you can ever do is always just go and see what other people have done. Yeah. So go on loads of site visits, talk to the people that have been there before you, um, and that will probably really, really help you kind of build up your skill sets. And just going back quickly to um, field layout, what do you think is the most important factor to consider for, you know, a landowner that's thinking, oh, I would like to give agroforestry a go, but I don't know which which field is the most suitable? Yeah, so I think there are, when it comes to kind of field design and field lay, layout, there's loads of things to consider. I mean, light is probably the biggest one for tree crops. Obviously, soil type, soil depth. Um, although particularly for arable farmers, you, you might find that planting trees really helps boost your soil health um, and helps you kind of retra- retain a lot of your soil and increase your soil carbon and things like that. Um, wind actually is probably one of another one of the biggest issues for trees. And um, so one of the, I would say that one of the errors that we made in our gorgeous agroforestry field um, is that you know you would think that a field surrounded by a hedge had enough of a windbreak, but actually because of the contours of the fields, different parts of it got hit hard by wind in different places mm. um, and so I mean taking a kind of a year or so to kind of get to know your site and just you know map out how light moves across or, or where your frost pockets are or where that you know where the wind direction is mostly and I would have assumed that most of the farmers though to be honest probably have this kind of ingrained in their subconscious um <laughs> from all the years of arable crops but you might need to kind of force yourself to, to focus on it to, to surface it from your subconscious to your conscious yeah. um, as you kind of make your plans um, and I think the thing to think about is harvesting so it, one of the errors that we could have made but I think you know we caught ourselves in time is, and again I would have thought this is almost second nature to arable farmers is entry points for harvesting your crop and um, you know what kind of it's balancing that field design need between maximizing light to, to trees and to the crops in between trees but also what makes the most sense for getting your kit in and out to harvest yeah. Other things to think about that we thought about with our trees is, you know, we picked two of our trees. We were picked on the basis that any arable or silage crop would have been cut and harvested before the trees needed harvesting. Um, and then we wouldn't have any issues, you know, going in, in the crop rows between because, you know, obviously you don't want to cause too much compaction or disturbance, but there wouldn't be a crop there that we would, you know, need to access over. Um, but with our elderflower trees, they require harvesting May due time where we might have had a standing arable or silage crop. So what we did is we kind of mapped out some additional space next to the tree rows that were, that you know, that's a harvest access path, basically. So we lost a bit more space um, to, I mean, you could put in like a pollinator strip or something like that, but we just lost it to kind of rough ground um, to enable um, machinery to, to get down next to the elderflowers during that harvest time without having to go across any crop that might be in the kind of rows in between. Um, so that's probably something you need to think about. In terms of pests and diseases, yeah, it's definitely worth thinking about what's kind of going on in your area. I mean, some might say that, um, you know, the added advantage of, of putting in agroforestry is you could potentially join up two blocks of existing woodland in a way that might help biodiversity move from, from one block to another. 
Um, but obviously, if you're putting more trees next to existing, you know, apple trees, and you're planting apple trees, and, you, and you're creating a really concentrated block, um, then you're giving yourself the opportunity to, to be relatively hit hard by disease if something comes up that specifically affects apple trees. So mm. a, a diversity always adds a degree of resilience. Um, we also put a 30 meter buffer strip around um, our trees um, because the biggest risk for us um, was gray squirrels um, okay. and uh, gray squirrel damage. They, I mean, we on the estate we had a huge problem with gray squirrels, and I happened to read an article which said squirrels don't bite across something like 24 meters of, of open space. Um, so I was like, right, well, I'm just going to put a 30 meter buffer around the field in the vague hope that that puts the squirrels off. And did um, it? Uh, um, yeah, I, I think it did. It brought, well, I never saw a squirrel. Oh. <laughs> I saw loads of other things. Trees, <laughs> I never saw a squirrel do it. <laughs> I mean, and the other, you know, the other issue we had uh, was deer. Um, now yeah. we achieved them because uh, we, uh, you know, some people might deer, depending on the crop you're planting. If it's incredibly high value, you might think it's worth deer fencing. Um, but we just decided it was worth paying someone to come in and, and shoot the deer and take the carcasses away and actually we had a cafe on site so we used to just turn them into sheep uh, and sell them to people um but um you know deer is definitely a consideration uh the problem that i didn't see coming that we had a huge problem with was voles okay um so uh i think i think we never quite figured out why but um i understand that voles have a kind of boom and bust population anyway um, but also the way we uh, we use a tractor to kind of mark out um, the lines um, where we were going to plant the trees, um, and it's quite it was quite clay soil. And then we we had a heat wave, and, and we thought those lines would just kind of naturally close over over time. Um, but actually, because we had a heat wave, they baked open, um, so we ended up with these kind of little. Uh, terrestrial kind of tunnels running between the trees um, that attracted slugs and then following the slugs came the voles and basically the voles just used to run up and down and you know hidden from predators and eat all the tree roots and make nests in the uh, mulch mats was not on my list of fears by any means um so uh i mean but now we know now and it turns out afterwards nobody i'd spoken to had mentioned this as being an issue before but afterwards someone else was like oh yeah that happened to me <laughs> <laughs> i was like great do you know what to do about it um and in reflection what you would do about it is if that happened to you is that you would rotate over where those rows were and make sure that they close back up again or you would do what we did and use the tractor to kind of mark out a line and it also kind of breaks up any compaction that you have underneath but you just plant the trees a bit off that line so their roots aren't directly in that line they're just to, uh, to the yeah. side of it um, and then you wouldn't have that problem and um, and that what, so what we did uh, is that we put up a couple of big wooden posts uh, to attract raptors to hunt in the field um, because raptors like to hunt by having a really tall perch that they sit on and look down at prey. So in order to encourage things in that would eat bowls, we put up some posts for them to sit on. Oh, that's a good idea. Yes. Such a simple solution. <laughs> well, yeah. Infrastructure, farm infrastructure, I'm thinking things like, you know, cold stores or even labour and things like that that an arable farmer might not necessarily have to worry about when they're not producing anything that needs to be hand-picked or refrigerated or anything. Yeah. How did you find that? Well, that's a really good question. And obviously, we did our design and planting pre-Brexit and pre-COVID. Um, so access to seasonal labour for, for 
sweet processing and picking is, is far more of an issue and a hot topic now than it was then. Uh, then we thought we'd probably be okay because um, obviously both of the companies that we work with had their own staff. Um, so one of them had kind of full-time staff growing and picking and harvesting because they already had kind of, they grew veg, they grew other fruits, they, you know, um, so they, they're doing it all year round. Um, and then um, uh, the other company working with Luskin Drinks were like, well, you know, we have people picking apples and elderflower and we've, we're pretty confident in our labour market. Um, whether they would still say that, I don't know. I haven't spoken to them, so I don't know how much they've been hit by um, the kind of Brexit and, and pandemic uh, impacts. Um, so it might be a bit of a different kettle of fish now. Um, but um, we, that, I mean, but the fact that we work with those companies also helped us with storage to a degree um, because they already stored and processed and had all of that equipment because it's part of the businesses that they already did. So the only crop that we were growing, um, which was a, a new, um, was a new crop and needed a new sort of big place to be processed and a, and a place to live, um, was the Szechuan pepper. Um, the advantage we had is that it's a it's a, it's a herb, it's a little seed, so it's really small. Oh, okay. um, um, so it, it did, it, to processing, it does require dehydrating, um, and then you do have to separate out, there's like a little inner seed, because it's only the outer husk you want. So you did, we need a process to separate those two things out. Um, but in, in terms of, um, of storage and, and you know, the kit needed. Lots to consider, but also lots of opportunities. Thanks very much, Harriet. It's been great chatting. And now for my final guest today, David Wolfe, whose organic agroforestry setup, Wakelands in Suffolk, is very well known, not just for its agroforestry. Um, but David, your parents started planting trees on the farm in the 90s. Um, it must be one of the larger agroforestry plots planted in recent years in the UK. We never quite make that claim because I don't. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it was my parents who started it off, as you know, in 1994. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, other people were planting agroforestry type systems in around that period. Um, uh, there's one in Northern Ireland, uh, one or two others. Um, I think what people say is that Wakelands is probably the oldest and most diverse. Um, and by most diverse, they mean in terms of the different styles of agroforestry within the farm, but also the different styles, even within each area of different tree planting and so on. So that we don't just have one sort of apple tree or one sort of timber tree. We have a very huge variety. So it's the it's the combination of longevity and uh, diversity, which I think makes Wakefield particularly special. Yeah. And as you just said, your parents started it in 1994. At the time, what was the principle behind it? Uh, well, my dad was a, um, a, a, at about that point about to be retired government agricultural scientist um, who had, um, through his sort of government conventional scientific working life, always been a, a bit of a cutting edge of, of agricultural developments around organic and growing mixtures and so on. Um, and this was something that he wanted to do in his retirement as a further innovation at a point where that was well ahead of what um, sort of government or universities or whatever were doing. So doing it himself on his own land enabled him to do things that were much more forward thinking. Um, at that point, and he didn't think of the idea of agroforestry, obviously, but at that point, agroforestry was being talked about, but nobody was implementing it in this kind of way. So he had and took the opportunity to implement in effect his own uh, private agroforestry system, which he did in a very experimental way with sort of five or six different styles of agroforestry on the farm um, 
uh, as a sort of personal and then became more public research exercise. So that was the impetus, really. It was a scientific uh, innovation from that point of view. And not far off, 30 years later, how how does it look there now? Uh, um, in what sense? So uh, he, he and my mother ran it from planting in 1994 to her death in 2016, his death in 2019, continuing really as, a, as essentially a scientific research experiment or series of experiments. Um, they had input during that period from a wide range of external science people, including people in the Organic Research Centre. Um, but that was really its focus. Now, they, when they died and my brother and I sort of ended up taking over, um, we, we are to some extent able to continue hosting science and research input and we still got ORC involvement um, and we are very much continuing with the operational um, agroforestry, the organic rotation of the agroforestry, mm. um, you know, recognising that that is now 25 years old and nobody else had a 25 year old system yeah. to continue. So there's a, there's a real value in continuing with that um, now, now maturing, not mature, maturing system um, because it's very different to um, stuff that other people have planted in the last few years, you know, the last two, two, three, four, five years, which is very young. Um, but we are also now, um, if you like, diversifying, evolving wakelets into something more of an agroforestry, teaching, learning um, hub um, mm. to do other things, which is, which is partly, I mean, there's a number of drivers for that. One is to make it more financially and operationally sustainable. One is to um, make it uh, more obviously available as a sort of demonstration and learning place for farmers and growers and people who are interested in food and the environment and so on um that's a way for us of keeping it going because it was never it was never planted um as as a never intended to be nor planted as a commercially sustainable uh, uh installation because it's it starts off being a small farm it's only 56 acres in the first place okay and divided into small areas each of which is a different style of agroforestry so we've got an area of short rotation coppiced willow agroforestry We've got an area which is fruit nut trees of agroforestry. We've got an area which is now maturing timber trees of agroforestry, and another area which is now short rotation willow agroforestry. So each of those is really a, a tiny, in farm scale, demonstration plot. Okay. Um, which means that they're not, they're not, they were never planted to be um, operationally or financially sustainable as as demonstration plots. But what that then means, and this is the, the joy, is, is that other farmers then come and visit, or other people then come and visit, including farmers and think, well, I can do that on my farm or my farm. So you've got people like, I don't know if you talked to them, George Young, down near Basildon, who yeah. planted 100 acres of agroforestry very recently, inspired by Wakelins. So he has he has um, essentially planted a version of the Wakelins um, uh, hardwood timber area. And then you've got Steve Briggs in Peterborough, who's planted 100 plus acres, which is essentially inspired by the Wakelins area, which has got fruit trees in. So they, they are then taking bits of the Wakelins idea, if you like, and doing it on a commercial scale. So what we effectively have is a small and fascinating and now maturing um, demonstration example and scientific experiment, which we want to keep going. Um, but in order for that to happen, we've, we've, you know, we're, not, we're partly being driven to diversify, but we're enjoying diversifying because we think bringing people there and carrying on the research and doing courses and educational things around the around the, you know, the wildlife and the food and so on is all part of the agroforestry system. So, so in a way, Wakelins is, a, is, a, is an oddity. Nobody would, nobody would now start to plant the Wakelins proposition, but, but that's because we're 25 years on, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And in terms of the actual um, cropping setup, you're planting crops between the trees, are you? Yeah. 
so we've, we've got um, 56 tree lines running north-south. Um, uh, they're different, different spacings because at that point, you know, consistent with doing a scientific experiment, my parents wanted to try different spacings. They had nobody to, to copy from at that point, so mm-hmm. they, working from first principles, ended up planting 12, 15, and 18, 18 metres wide separations. Um, the lesson that people have learned from that is that probably for a commercial scale operation, those are too narrow, so people are now planting 20 or 24 or 25 metre wide spacings. Um, so we've got different areas of different spacings. And then within those tree lines, as I say, we've got an area where the trees are short rotation hazels, which are coppiced on a seven year cycle for a range of uses. Um, uh, and then we've got an area which is short rotation willow, again, coppiced for a range of uses. We've got an area which is um, long term timber trees, which are now 25 years old and looking absolutely splendid. We've got an area of fruit trees with you know dozens of sorts of apples in. So each of those areas is quite different. So if you walk around, you would see distinctly different areas and that's what that's what farmers who are in agroforestry come to look at at Wakelands um, and then in between we've got the, the alleys and in the alleys again there's a variety of things going on there's a there's a, an organic rotation so that at any one point in in you know sort of four-year cycles some of the alleys are uh, have got crops in which might be wheat or uh, lentils or whatever um, and some of them are in a fertility building lay cycle um, and so that's that's you could almost say that's a sort of uh, conventional sort of organic rotation, but it's happening within the within the alleys between the trees. And then we've now got um, some horticulture going on in some alleys and various other things. So, so in a way, it's a very um, uh, wide range of examples of different combinations of things. And that's what visitors want to come and see and learn from. And that symbiotic relationship that you get between the trees and the crops, how does that work? Yeah, so 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 um, the the trees, in terms of the direct impact on the trees, um, we think the trees are preventing windborne pathogens from being spread um, because they're acting as windbreaks. We think the trees are helping to hold in moisture so the land doesn't dry out. Um, we think there may be all sorts of interactions going on underground that people have looked at. Um, so there are all sorts of positive, uh, uh, beneficial relationships between the trees um, and the crops in the alleys. Um, but I think in a way, um, that's only one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is to say, we effectively have two completely, even if there was no interaction, we have two completely separate activities going on in the field, which are entirely sort of sympathetic and symbiotic. We've got, let's say, a wheat crop and an apple crop. Um, uh, and we think that's more sustainable in all sorts of ways. That's supporting agro, supporting the organic system, but it's also helping to sequester carbon to tackle climate change. It's also improving biodiversity by supporting wildlife, a whole range of other things, in a way that you know a giant monoculture field of uh, wheat, or even a giant monoculture field of wheat next to a giant apple orchard, um, wouldn't be doing. So that it's not it's not simply about potential beneficial interactions at a di- direct, immediate level between a tree and a wheat plant. It's actually a much bigger system interaction. Yeah. And do you think this kind of system could work across most? enterprises or would you say it's quite specific to you know your organic setup uh well there's, there's nothing in a way you could you could do agroforestry without the organic and you do you can do organic without the agroforestry and there are obviously examples of both of those things um i think the lesson that people are learning is is that they are planting agroforestry um by and large they're planting it on a wider space alleys um and on a larger uh, field size but that's simply scale economies so that's, that's obviously very doable in a lot of the farms you know, in East Anglia and across the country, 
which at present these sort of um, huge prairie-style fields um, of monoculture, they could easily be um, planted as agroforestry very quickly. As I say, that's a separate question to whether they're also organic. Um, we have the interaction between both, but you could do one without the other. Yeah. Um, so definitely, um, you know, well, people are going away and, and following that lead. Um, at the moment, they're doing it because they think it's the right thing to do and they think it's long-term in their financial, environmental, and so on interest. Um, we, you know, we hope and expect that in due course, the sort of government subsidy schemes will, in, will more directly encourage that. And I think, I think they will, given what... Committee on Climate Change, for example, has been very clear that there needs to be a lot more tree planting, a lot of which needs to take place on farms because that's where the land is. Um, some of it will be for long-term timber, some of it will be for short rotation, um, sustainable uh, uh, biomass fuels. So all of those things are absolutely, are not just coming down the track, they're here now as big picture political imperatives. Um, we need to plant more trees, some of them will have to be on farms. This is a very good way of doing it. If farmers want to plant trees, then planting apple trees in your wheat field is a good place to start. Exactly. And what kind of support would you like to see? Because I suppose you know better than anyone um, kind of the risks associated with it and where support might be needed. Well, I think different people will need different support, different, different farms and so on will need different kinds of support. Um, uh, I think there is now... Um, over the last 25 years, an enormous body of expertise has grown up, and so there's now a lot of advisory support from bodies like the Woodland Trust um, and the Soil Association about uh, agroforestry and planting it, why to do it, how to do it, all the rest of it. So I think I think that is growing. I'm sure there's more to be done, but that's definitely growing. Mm. Um, I think the other the other factors. Um, in a sense, I'm not a good person to say why um, other landowners and farmers aren't interested in agroforestry. I suspect. To some extent, it's the natural caution about new things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think more practically, it's probably that um, if, if you start on agroforestry, or indeed organic has a similar um, issue associated with it, um, it's several years at the very least before you see any real benefit. And if, if, you were, if you were a cereal farmer with a 150-acre field of wheat in front of you, um, if you were to plant agroforestry tree lines in it uh, next week, um, the, the immediate impact would be a negative because in the short term you'd be compromising your wheat field it would be harder to harvest and all the rest of it the benefits though come in the medium to long term depending on what's in your tree lines with huge carbon sequestration right from day one at the moment you plant the trees um, but they're more more financially I suppose um, in due course uh, financial return on the crops or whatever it is you've planted in those tree lines as well as any interactions that you get between that and the cereals now how quickly you get those financial returns obviously depends upon what that sort of financial profile looks like, depends upon what you plant in your tree lines. If you've planted um, a relatively commercial apple variety, you might start to get a return on your apples in really a small number of years. And I think there are examples around the country of people who've done that. If, on the other hand, you are looking at this as a long-term proposition, as um, some big landowners and some sort of country you know, estates owners and so on are doing, you're looking at decades or whatever, then you plant a long-term timber crop um, and you don't see the financial return for for years or decades, but um, the benefits are still there. So I think one of the difficulties is that farmers these days are very um, financially up against it. They're very dependent on the subsidy regime. Um, They they have to, to some extent, or at least they feel, they have to follow those financial imperatives. And so doing something like agroforestry or even organic agroforestry takes 
takes, if you like, a financial leap. And it's yeah. a financial leap that many of them are not in a position to, to undertake. So in terms of the support that's needed, what we need is a, is a financial regime for farming and a policy regime for farming that supports and encourages farmers to take that, um, that decision, which is both in their interest, medium and long term, but also much more particularly in the general public interest, um, short, medium and long term. Uh, and I can well understand why farmers at the moment are reluctant to do that, because in the first year or two or whatever, it looks like a step backwards. But this is a long term problem and is a long term solution. Exactly. And that seems to be, you know, the, the key message um, from any farmers I've spoken to that are considering agroforestry is that initial startup cost. Um, but if any of our listeners did want to learn more about agroforestry, you hold open days at Wakelands, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. We hold we hold open days. So um, uh, this year we held a, an open day with a working weekend with a group of other agroforestry sites in East Anglia. We're planning on doing that again next year, 2022, um, and stretching beyond East Anglia if we can. So the dates for that are May the 21st and 22nd um, of 2022. We'll shortly be putting out publicity for that. But what we're hoping is that there'll be a range of agroforestry sites across well, East Anglia and beyond. Um, which people can visit on a sort of open access, possibly needing to book, but an open access basis to come and look. And we had, when we did that this year, um, we had um, something like 270, 280 people come over the course of the weekend, even though it was um, time for people travelling, um, many of whom were farmers and landowners who came to visit and have a look. And we, we get many visitors who, who have um, land or interest in land or, or simply people who are interested in seeing what agroforest is like who want to come and have a look. Um, so, so absolutely there are opportunities to look at not just Wakelands but the other sites where people are doing it more recently and on a more commercially uh, sustainable basis long term. I mean, they're, 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 all of those people, as far as I know, are absolutely um, keen to uh, show what they're doing and for others to learn from, from that experience. Well, I'll have to make sure I come along to that. Please do. <laughs> Please do. May the 21st or 22nd. <laughs> Excellent. All right, that's great. Thanks, David. And that is all we've got time for for today, I'm afraid. But that was an extra long episode for a really interesting topic. And I think there were some really good suggestions for places to go in search of more information on agroforestry if you wanted to. Thank you again for listening and wishing you a very happy Christmas and a happy new year. Bye.